feels good to be back up here again. Let's go to our sovereign king and ask him to bless us by his spirit through his word. Father, we gather to hear from you, to be redeemed by you, to be transformed by you, in order that we would exalt your name and make you known throughout all the earth. Would you do that now? Help me lift high the name of our King. Help us unify in our love for you that your story would be lived out through us. Amen. A TV commercial a few years ago for Universal Studios flashes superheroes across the screen while telling you if you come and visit their park, you will be courageous. You can be outrageous. You can be extraordinary. Disney World has similar marketing. They tell you it's the most magical place on earth where all your dreams come true. And indeed, hundreds of millions of people every single year are persuaded that they will find this courage and extraordinary happiness by visiting these places. Everyone is so desperate to be caught up in some story that makes their lives feel significant. I'm not really saying that's why we ended up going there or everyone goes there. But there's something to that. And as I watched the park goers walk throughout, I couldn't help but marvel at how caught up in the story being told they were. At Harry Potter World, there were thousands and thousands of people, a large majority of them grown adults with no children, dressed from head to toe in wizard robes brandishing wands, pointing them at things around the park and interacting with staff like they're really part of some magic world. The Star Wars place at Disney World is equally immersive, impressive. Giant life-size spaceships around every corner, droids cruising down the path, and of course thousands of people dressed in rebel resistance or evil empire attire, brandishing, wielding their lightsabers, ready to engage in cosmic battle between the evil empire and the rebel resistance. People will spend thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to immerse themselves dressed full in costume in this story so that for just one moment, maybe a few days, they can feel brave. They can feel magical. But as cool and exciting as that entire experience is, you still have to go home to your ordinary, not wizard, not Jedi life. You didn't really become courageous waving an electronic wand at a dragon statue. You didn't really experience lasting happiness and achieve equality by riding on a boat for 15 minutes singing It's a Small World over and over. It seems kind of funny. Maybe there's just a few silly people in the world that have a difficult time distinguishing between fantasy and reality. But the truth is that Every single one of us 
fails to make that distinction every day. We all immerse ourselves in stories in the world to try to make ourselves feel important. Some people do it by going to Disney World. Others do it by immersing themselves in video games so they can, without any risk, conquer the enemy, rescue the princess, defeat the dragon. Others spend thousands of dollars immersing themselves in their favorite sports team, getting as close to the action as possible, dressed in another man's battle uniform. Or maybe your story is a little more subtle and more culturally acceptable. You immerse yourself in education and your career helping sick people get better. You start businesses so others can have jobs. You, you make yourself, you give yourself fully to parenting, feeling like if, if my kids are successful, then my life will have meaning. In the world, these stories are all the reality there is. And they think this, this religious stuff we do is just an illusion. But the story of Exodus, of Israel and their Exodus shows us that God's redemptive work is the true reality. It's the only story that gives meaning to all the other things you do with your life. It's the only experience that will satisfy your longing for purpose in everything you do. It's the only truth that will hold you back from despair when your child is taken away from you. The story of Exodus is meant to redefine our identity, how we think of ourselves and reshape how we see into the world around us so we can Avoid the stories that the world is always trying to draw us in with. The Exodus calls us to an identity that exalts the name of God as his redeemed people. That's our main idea today. Exalt the name of God as his redeemed people. See, the Exodus from Egypt wasn't just about rescuing some random oppressed people. Lots of people were suffering in those days. But it was about God getting a specific type of glory. The first half of the whole book, chapters 1 through 18, includes these cool stories that many of us are familiar with. The call of Moses and coming down the, the river in the basket. And the burning bush scene. And the ten plagues and that dramatic Red Sea parting rescue. All of it, though, is for the purpose of vindicating God's name. God wants the whole earth to know how mighty, how just, how merciful his character is. He wants everyone to know that he keeps his promises. Particularly in the story so far, his promises to Eve and to Abraham. That he's going to, through Abraham's family, restore his people to a garden relationship with him. And so after he rescues Israel for his name, he doesn't just leave the people, say, okay, go figure out life. Chapters 19 to 20 creates a new nation representing his name. It's not just enough to say what we are saved from, what we are leaving behind, but we must also talk about what we are saved for. 
God saves people to be joined together as one. One people who make his name known throughout all the earth in our unified love for him and one another. It's what God's been doing since the beginning. This is the story that we want to draw you closer and closer into as we explore the Bible book by book. The Bible's not just an instruction manual that you can flip through and find some practical advice on how to live your story well. This is God's redemptive drama calling you to surrender your entire story to his. All the rituals, the festivals, the prophets given to remember this moment. All of them calling back to this identity shaping moment in their lives. And it's the imagery that the New Testament authors refer to over and over again to define our salvation and what the church is. We want this story to be yours so fully that you can see through all the false narratives of the world, all the empty promises of meaning and safety and happiness. And the more you make this identity your personal story, the less distracted you are by all the flashing lights in the world. The less confused you are, you can be about all the conflicting messages from various news agencies. The less you need a script to go into the world and share the gospel with your neighbor, the more hopeful you'll be when the world, the trials of life threaten to pull you down. The more confident you can be when death shows its ugly face to you. So we're going to speed through some select verses from the book of Exodus today to show how this story calls us to exalt God's name as his redeemed people. If you want to turn to the book of Exodus, we'll start in chapter 1 and we'll flip through. Chapter 1, verse 7, there, the people of God are in Egypt. And he says, Moses writes, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. If you, your ears are tuned to the story of God already, what Jake has preached the last couple of weeks from the book of Genesis, you're already thinking, hey, this sounds like Adam and Eve's command is being fulfilled to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the land, fill the earth. And that promise to Abraham that his family would grow exceedingly great and become a new nation, it's coming true. Except, instead of living in this garden paradise, God's people are living in tortuous slavery. Oppression. They're not under the rule of God. They're under the rule of Pharaoh and his false gods. It kind of sounds like once you get to this point that God has not kept his promises. Where is this God? Is he powerful to save? Hang on there, buddy. Because God is about to conduct a dramatic rescue to vindicate his name, to prove his faithfulness to his promises. So the root of Israel's problem wasn't social injustice and overpopulation, a lack of jobs, no access to quality medical care, 
poor education, insufficient work ethic. The cause of God's woes was that everyone forgot who the main character was. This world is God's story. And God's own people didn't even know who he was. Turn to chapter 3. A couple pages ahead. Chapter 3 is the great burning bush scene. When Moses is walking through the wilderness tending some sheep. And suddenly there's a bush on fire. But it's not. And it talks to him. He says, Moses, I want you to lead my people out of Egypt. And his first response is, me? I, I'm nobody. I don't even, I don't, I, I, stuttering, stammering, trying to, why me? God says, it's okay. I will be with you. And in verse 13, he, Moses responds, um, who are you? You're, you're a talking bush on fire. Who are you? If, if I'm going to go lead the people, who do I tell them is lead, calling us out? And he says in response in verse 14, God says to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus, by this name, I am to be remembered throughout all generations. The whole reason God is going to rescue them is so that his name would be remembered throughout all the earth. From generation to generation. The name Yahweh literally means in Hebrew, the self-existent one. I am, or the one who causes things to exist. He is. He is above all things, dependent upon nothing. He has no beginning and no end. He sovereignly controls everything in between by his own decree for his own glory. It is by this name he desires to be known throughout all the earth. Yet, ironically, you don't see that name in your Bible. When the name Yahweh is written in Hebrew, it's translated the Lord in all caps. Because the Jews at some point became so scared to even misuse God's name with their lips That when they see the word Yahweh, they just say, Adonai, Lord. It may seem like a rather small detail, but it is very important later on in the story. We'll come back to it. And so with this name, Yahweh, Moses returns to Egypt and he tells Pharaoh, you got to let us go or suffer some great consequences. Pharaoh, (laughs) you're kidding, right? Says who? Well, Moses tells him in chapter 5, Yahweh says, let Israel go. And look at what what Pharaoh says in response in chapter 5, verse 2. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord, Yahweh, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, Yahweh. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Yahweh? Never heard of him. See, 
Pharaoh in, in that world was seen as one of the gods. He was the one who ruled for the gods over all the earth. So he thinks he has all authority and he knows all the other gods. He says, I've never heard of him. I'm in charge around here. Show me your Yahweh. And from this point on, Yahweh shows up in a mighty way. He begins his 10 plague showdown to confront Pharaoh and all his gods to show who he really is. Every one of these 10 plagues designed to attack certain ones of Egypt's gods. They attack the God of the sun, the God of the Nile river, the God of prosperity, the God of life, the God of fertility, their God of crops and health and peace and of the sky and of weather showing himself to be infinitely mightier than every single one of them. And God deals his decisive blow, confronting Pharaoh right where it hurts the most. Right in his own dynasty, his own home, his firstborn son. The final plague takes the life of every firstborn in his, in Egypt who is in a home that does not have their doorposts covered in the blood of a lamb. Pharaoh lost his son, his dynasty. But Israel became a new dynasty in the blood of the lamb. They ate the blood of that lamb, the, the meat from that lamb, making it a part of themselves. It's death becoming theirs. But Pharaoh's kingdom crumbled as Israel's grew. Israel, he sent them packing and they already had their sandals on, their staves in hand, pockets full of unleavened bread, and they're ready to get out of that place. You see what God did? I am following him wherever he leads. Until it gets a little too dangerous, I guess. Until our backs are up against the sea. We're caged in by the sea and mountains on all sides and an unrepentant Egyptian army right in front of us. What are they going to do? What do you do when obedience to God leads you to stand face to face with death? Just like Jake mentioned last week with Abraham and Isaac. How does the promise of God fit with this imminent death you obey and trust God to keep his promises and suddenly the enormous sea splits apart walls of water on either side dry ground right in front of them the imagery hearkening back again to Genesis the beginning of creation or Noah's flood when dry ground emerges from the chaotic waters giving people life Birthing new nations. God is destroying an old creation and starting a new one. Israel scrambles through the waters of salvation with Egypt hot on their tails. Yet when the last one of God's people makes it through, not, not one was left behind. The last one made it through. And just before the water comes crashing down in waves of judgment... Egypt cries out, flip ahead to chapter 14. Whoa, not Deuteronomy, that's way too far. Chapter 14, verse 25. 
Sorry, Malachi, I'm going to keep going. Chapter 14, verse 25. Their chariot wheels are clogged and the Egyptians cried out, Let us flee from before Israel. Why? Because for Yahweh fights for them. Finally, they know who Yahweh is. Yahweh fights for them. In Egypt's judgment, God glorified his name. All of us are made to glorify God. And Egypt's end warns us, God will get glory from you, whether you are a faithful follower or a rebellious sinner. But the only path that results in your joy is surrendering yourself to his story to experience his mercy and forgiveness. If you try to make the story about yourself, about your wisdom, your success, your great part in his redemptive work, making yourself a main character, it will eventually come to a disastrous end. But if you follow him, surrender to him, Obey Him no matter the cost. Trust His promises to raise you from the dead, even if it threatens your life. What looks like a disastrous end will turn out to be the beginning of an abundant, joyful, eternal life. Look at the birth of this new nation called to follow this God. Chapter 15 records the response when they when Israel finally sees Yahweh is mighty to save then the Mo, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord Yahweh if you ever watched the movie Prince of Egypt it's not exactly accurate but they sing this song in Hebrew when they're coming out of the Red Sea sing it with me I will sing to Yahweh, they say, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider has, he has thrown into the sea. Yahweh is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him and my father's God and I will exalt him. Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Finally, Israel knows him by name. By experiencing his rescue. Can you imagine that moment when they turn around and their 400 year slave masters are swallowed up by the sea? (sighs) The only thing I can think of that compares is when I finally get to run home to Jesus. The only proper response to such a mighty work is God's people joining their voices in song, exalting his name. And now, now they are ready to represent him in all the earth. See, salvation from bondage is only half the story. We also need to talk about what we've been saved for, what we have been saved to be, to become Minor characters in the story, but characters nonetheless who represent his name. See how chapter 19 starts. Chapter 19, just a few verses later, right before they're at the mountain to get the law. 
verses four through six. God says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and you should be quaking in your boots or your sandals. How I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed, indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And the rest of the book describes in great detail what is required of God's people that he brought through the sea out of Egypt. There to be a nation that represents his name, his holy, majestic, mighty name. It's important for us to remember, to realize the law wasn't given to them before they were saved to say, if you keep this, then I'll rescue you. The law was given after they were saved to define who is a faithful representative of me, of my name. It's to model for the rest of the world in our relationships with one another what God does for people who exalt his name. These laws include a few personal moral characteristics for the individual life, but the vast majority of it is telling us how we are to relate to God and to one another. Or how Israel, I'm getting ahead of myself with the we. It's not really how the people were to relate to other nations. There's a few things in there about that. But the primary way they relate to the rest of the world is showing the rest of the world how unified they are in worshiping God and loving each other. How do they show community love together? How do they care for one another in a way that makes the world go, wow. They are so committed. They are willing to face death together because they're so immersed in this story. Additionally, the law lays out, or more specifically, the law lays out more in detail the design and practices of the tabernacle, this mobile temple that says, this is where you are going to put my name on display. This is where you're going to act out the drama of redemption. This is how God will dwell in their midst without killing them all. There's provision in this, these temple rituals for sacrifice to cover their sin. So what happened to Egypt doesn't have to happen to them. So their entire existence, their identity now centered on what happens at this temple, this tabernacle. No matter what else they did with their lives throughout the week, It all flowed out of the drama that is remembered and promised in the temple rituals. When you arrive at the temple, you have to turn towards God and away from the rest of the world to walk in. The sacrifice is reminding them the seriousness of their sin and the promise of a sacrifice to come that would take away all sin. The garden imagery inside the temple To remind them that this world will not satisfy any of your longings for home. But we were made for a restored garden creation. The feasts always pointing them to God's provision and protection and promised one day we would live in a world full of prosperity. Singing at the temple was the way they constantly reminded themselves that all of this is dependent upon us regularly exalting the name of God, trusting him as their deliverer. 
Now, if you've been listening carefully, maybe some people have a tally going. You may have noticed that thus far in this entire sermon, I have not once mentioned the name of Jesus. And we've told you that this entire sermon series is to show you how the whole story, how every book culminates and points to Jesus. If only you would give me the rest of the week. Sit still, get comfortable. I'll show you how this book points to Jesus on every page. There's too many details and applications that we've had to leave out, but I've alluded to his name so many times already. As I mentioned before, the imagery of the book of Exodus is some of the most remembered and referenced stories throughout the entire New Testament. It all points to Jesus and his church. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the son Israel failed to be. He's the prophet that Moses' life pointed to. He's the tabernacle and all its furniture that symbolized God's presence with us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He's the sacrificial lamb who gives us life and forgives our sins. He's the high priest who stands between us and God. Most importantly, Paul tells us in Philippians 2, he is the mighty warrior king who humbled himself to become our servant, to fight for us, whose name is above every name. He is God. Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, Yahweh. Your entire salvation is all about making Jesus known in this world. The entire Bible about making Jesus known on every single page. And now the rest of your life made for representing his name. He purchased you by his blood so that you would die in the Red Sea and rise to a new life living for him to play your role in his redemptive drama. The only question remaining is where do us New Testament saints Play that role. Paul tells the Corinthians and the Ephesians, the church, not this hotel building, you gathered together are the new temple where we meet together with God. We sing exalting his name. We act out the story of redemption in everything we do. As a constant reminder of where we have come from and where we are going, what we have been saved from and what we have been saved for. First Peter chapters one and two tell us the church is the new priesthood, the holy nation. We're on our own exodus representing him in the world. Romans eight says in Christ, we are new obedient sons, a new family on our way to a new creation. The gospel is our exodus. The death and resurrection of Jesus is our death to our old life and our birth to a new Israel. Jesus is the true prophet, the faithful son, the perfect king, the spotless lamb, the holy temple, the pure high priest. And yet he was destroyed, judged for us. So that we can rise with him into faithful sons, faithful priests, servants just like him. 
And when we gather every week, we put on this drama of redemption, remembering what that cross saved us from and what the resurrection saves us for. Remember, everyone wants to feel a part of a story. We want to get lost in something that makes us feel meaningful. And what is more exciting, more satisfying, more God-glorifying than the story of redemption, God rescuing His people from sin and uniting them into a holy nation? Jesus is the vindication of God's name and His church is the people who represent His name everywhere we gather to worship Him. Every time we gather, we replay the events of the Exodus. When you leave your home to come to worship, you are telling your neighbors, I'm leaving Egypt and I'm on my way to the promised land. When we have our call to worship at the beginning, we're proclaiming, Israel, come on out of Egypt. Come worship your God. A time of confession allows us a moment to repent of all the stories we've immersed ourselves in. The idolatry we have committed. And lay it in the sea and let God crush it. When someone gets baptized, we remind ourselves the path to life is through the judgment waters of the Red Sea to birth into a new family. When we sing together, we repeat the song of Moses, reminding ourselves that all of this depends on exalting the name of Jesus above every other name, above all other gods and kings and governors and leaders. Communion is a reminder of the death of our Passover lamb, Jesus, who had to die so we could live. When we give offerings, we're just like Israel saying, here, Moses, Aaron, go build that temple so more people can see our amazing God at work. Your greeting ministry, your Sunday school teaching, your your audio visual Ministry, your prayers, your setting up and tearing down, your encouragement, all of this is playing a role in the redemptive drama, a priesthood of believers serving our king and one another. This isn't to say that what you do out there doesn't matter. It's all important, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of King Jesus. But all of it flows out of this identity, this central drama acted out in the temple of Christ, the church. Whether you're a homemaker or a plumber, a custodian or a doctor, a teacher or a nurse, your primary identity in Christ is a kingdom of priests and a holy nation to Jesus. Israel had masons and musicians, builders, kings, farmers, artists, soldiers, all kinds of laborers. They did all kinds of things to glorify God in their work. But first, they were Israelites made to worship God in his temple and make him known by their righteous, unified love for one another. All these skills, simply tools to put his name on display in the world and draw more people in. Through this drama of salvation, exalting the name of Jesus week by week by week, we actually become that holy nation. We practice becoming holy until we become holy. As we embrace this identity, then we become the place for the foreigner to come find a home. 
The orphan to find a family. The widow, the single mom to find provision. The poor to find relief. We are a nation where oppression, injustice, racism, inequality are nowhere to be found. Where women are valued for their femininity and men are built up to lead courageously obeying and trusting God no matter the cost. Where husbands deny themselves to make their marriage about Christ. Where our jobs are not our identity, but an opportunity to tell people about a better story. This story that we proclaim and model every time we gather. If you want to reach your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers, your family, you need to immerse yourself fully in this story. Because brothers and sisters, the world is constantly, subtly trying to convince you that there are greater stories to immerse yourself in. Whether it's Disney World, education, career success, a family legacy, politics, sports, public health, games, sophisticated experiences, or exotic adventures. But the greatest story being told happens every time you join your Voices, your arms, your lives together to exalt the name of King Jesus. So as we go into a short time of prayer, think about what stories you're tempted to immerse yourself in to make your name great. And take this prayer time to confess them to God. Lay them at the cross. Throw them into the Red Sea. And walk forward making your life, your marriage, your job, your identity about exalting the name of Jesus as his redeemed people. Let's pray. God, what an honor it is to get to be loved by Jesus and to love Jesus with these beloved people. I thank you for the way that they have shown my family, Jesus, in the last few months. They have modeled for me the redemption and proclaimed for me hope in Jesus over and over and over. So that now more than ever, I want to be done with my old life. And I want to press on with a face like flint toward the new Jerusalem. Help us press on. No matter what we are tempted to place our identity in, help us exalt the name of Jesus as we gather. Help us exalt the name of Jesus as we go to work and as we go home and as we go play. Help us represent the name of Jesus that you would be glorified throughout all generations. In the name of King Jesus, we pray. Amen.